We are back into our series, Alpha and Omega. We started into that last week. We're looking at the covenants uh, as, as they're laid out across the scripture. Uh, and I just want to remind you of the ways that we're de- defining that because sometimes people are too narrow in their definition of covenant. Sometimes people miss components of the covenant. And so we're, we're using a couple of definitions to help us recognize and understand covenant in the Bible. Uh, and, and first, I would point you to Tom Schreiner, professor out of Southern. He, he writes, uh, he defines a covenant this way, a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. It's more than a contract, it's a relationship, but there are binding promises. There's, there's responsibilities on, on both sides of this relationship, this covenant agreement, uh, covenant partnership. And so, so the second one that I would point you to is by Steve, uh, Peter Gentry and Stephen Willem. Uh, they define it this way, a relationship between two parties involving permanent and serious commitments of faithful, loyal, love, obedience, and trust. And so uh, the reason I would use those two different ones is because the, the first one, and they, they both basically say the same thing about, about relationship and between parties, but one, as one highlights the binding promises, the other really, really demonstrates the attitudes of the heart behind those binding promises. Because sometimes we're just checking boxes when we're uh, uh, living in accordance with something. There's something intentional and purposeful in, in what we're called to in loving. And uh, o- obedience that's not driven by love is really, really something different than obedience. Obedience is something that, that's not built out of faith is really something other than obedience. And, and so I don't have time to break all that out, but, but I want you to see that there's a way in which it is a binding promises, but there are heart attitudes that are tied up in that. And I sought to describe that some last week. So if you missed that sermon, please go back, listen to it, um, just to demonstrate some of the, the, the faithful covenant love that was called out and the truthfulness or the trustworthiness, the loyalty. Um, anyway, so, so these definitions are going to kind of give us a framework. And as we work through the biblical covenants between God and man, we're going to see these components laid out. That's how we're going to identify and recognize um, a covenant in the Scripture. And so, so we'll get to see those break out and work out. And we're going to study through each of the six covenants that, that lay out. And today, we're starting with the first one, covenant with creation, as God creates and enters into a covenant relationship with mankind. And so, so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read several verses uh, and I'm going to be reading chunks, so I'm going to go ahead and pray. Typically, I would read the scripture and then pray, but I'm going to go ahead and pray and just ask for God to be with us, for his spirit to be on us, um, and, and then we'll read through the text, and then we'll jump in uh, to what it has for us as we look at covenant. So let's pray. Father, I do pray that today you would be near us, that your spirit would be moving and working, guiding, protecting, guarding my words and mouth, um, but also guarding our hearts and, and drawing us really to see, um, to see what you've done, to see who you are and how you've worked and, and why this even matters. But then as a result, that we would live with joy, that we would um, be filled with it and express it in our lives, that we would be filled with love, that we would, be, that we would know great peace because you're a God who's faithful to his promises. Um, so I just pray that you do that today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 26. We'll read through 29, and we're going to jump down into Genesis chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible and you're going to follow along, I would encourage that because I want you to see it in the Word. 
Um, open it up and, and, and just get ready. We'll, we'll jump down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 through 9, and then Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 25. And I'm going to make some references to Genesis 3, um, but we're not going to be able to read it. So just know, as, as, as you listen and, and work, we work through this today, I'd encourage you at some point, go back, look at it, and see if these things really, um, well, are biblical. I think they are. You, I often say, I probably shouldn't say it. I'm going to say it. Um, I often say, you don't have to agree with me. I don't mind if you're wrong. It's, it's okay. You can be wrong. We can disagree about this. But, but really, I, I do think, honestly, it's biblical. And, and otherwise, I wouldn't be here doing this. So let's read it, and then we'll, we'll walk, walk, walk through it. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The word says, let me get there myself. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And jump down to chapter 2, verse 7. And this is a transition. So there's a, been a, a transition takes place. And, and the six days of creation, the chronological flow of creation ends. And now God inspires Moses to tell this story, this moment of creating mankind, uh, from the perspective of the man, or the mankind, man and woman central to the story as opposed to the chronological flow. So jumping down into verse chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the... Gr- the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've studied this at length. You recognize that these two trees are meaningful. There's substance to them. The, the Moses isn't calling them out. God's not inspiring him to, to point, the, point them out because there's nothing to do with them. There's intention there, and we're, we're about to be introduced to, to, to that intention or that purpose. And jump down into verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put, the, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat it, you, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name or its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But Adam, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. So I just want to point this out. We're going to reference it later. Point it out now. 
there's an authority already being expressed. In the same way that he named creatures, and we're not equating women to creatures, but in the same way he ex- exercised authority to name the creatures, he exercised authority to name his wife. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The first marriage taking place. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I told you last week that as we entered into this and we're studying the covenants, I told you and tried to begin to introduce the, the covenants to you, that every person who has ever lived, ever will live, is living right now, is related to God in terms of a covenant. There is no escaping this. There's no, no way that, that we can't relate to God in some way in covenant because that's the way that God has determined that he's going to interact and relate to man. This doesn't mean that a person has to trust God, doesn't have to obey to God, doesn't have to submit to God, doesn't even have to believe that God exists. A person can be agnostic or atheistic and is still related to God on terms or in the terms of some covenant. No, no one can avoid this covenant, nor can they avoid facing the curse that that covenant, because of Adam's failure as our first covenant head, brought because of his failure to abide in this covenant. God the creator, this is the point, and we're going to work this out all through the rest of the morning. God the creator bound himself in covenant relationship to his creation with the promise of life and fellowship or death and exile. God the creator bound himself in covenant relationship to his creation with the promise of life and fellowship or death and exile. So unfortunately, when faced with temptation, when faced with the opportunity, Adam and Eve rejected God's authority and they went on their own way. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 3. We studied it from September up into November. We spent several weeks working through Genesis 1 through 3. Adam and Eve, they, they rejected God's authority and they went their own way. Adam and Eve didn't trust God in his promises of, of death. They rejected the life that he had provided. But they did trust the word of the serpent. If you go back and you read in, that, in, in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent says, did God really say that? You're not really going to die. And Eve's like, wait a minute, this is, gonna, this is good and this is, is going to give life. She trusted the serpent over her creator Adam had to work through that same process. We don't exactly get to see it spelled out, but he has to decide, wait a minute, that there's something that I'm missing. There's some opportunities that, that, that I am not getting without eating this fruit. And so, so they, they decide, well, maybe there's a blessing on the other side of this fruit. They decide to go their own way. They reject his authority. They go their own way. They've disobeyed God's instruction and found themselves facing the curse of God's covenant, death and exile. And today, we're born into that same reality. Every one of us, we know from Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 1 through 3 really shows us that everyone is a sinner. Even as you stand in judgment of other people, you reveal your own sin, right? Like, well, that's a sinner, you know, and so are you. And, and, and so Paul doesn't let us. Romans 1, here's all these lists of sins. And oh, by the way, Romans 2, as soon as you start pointing out everybody else's sin, you demonstrate yourself to be a sinner. It's just the reality of it. And it doesn't mean that we don't call out sin. It just means that we recognize we're sinners too, right, as we do it. We, we can't deal with the speck in someone else's eye as long as we're not dealing with the, the log in our own. We can't ignore the log in our own. Well, we tried to, but that's another story for another day, a whole other sermon. 
But here we, here we are, right? This is where we're at. This is what we're born into. We're born dead and in exile. And we are surrounded and face death every day, even though we try to pretend that we don't. We try to pretend that we have these great lives. We try to pretend that the, that the nice house is the, the, the comfy clothes. And a, a, it's a shirt I'll never wear again because I found somebody else in the church that just happened to decide to wear his today, same exact time. But here we are. We got these nice clothes. We try to pretend, we try to dress it up, we try to cover it up, we try to act like it's not true, but we are surrounded by death, we face death, we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, because Adam and Eve rejected to live in the covenant promises of God and received the covenant curse of God. I did a quick search this week on, on, on this, and, and, and according to info floating out there on the info webs or on the interwebs, you know, I don't know how true it is, but I, I, you can go look it up and see if you like it or not. But according to this one source, um, they had a clock counting down that said every, every 11.55 seconds, someone in the United States dies. So think about that. From, from the time that we started this morning, from, from, the, from the time that the first note of the first song was sung, however many Times you could divide that into 11.55, that many people have died. You are closer to death in this moment than you were when I first started preaching. And every second that ticks by, we all face the reality of death. In, in, according to the CDC, again, you can trust that if you want to, but, sorry, I shouldn't be making comments like that. That's not helpful in the current day we live but according to the CDC website, the leading causes of death in 2021 were heart disease, around 693,000-ish, cancer was about 605,000-ish people, and COVID was about 415,000. It's top three causes of death, heart disease, cancer, COVID. But that's not exactly true. We don't face death because of heart disease or cancer or COVID. We face heart disease and cancer and COVID because we are dead and dying. The leading cause of death, as depicted in the scripture, is the failure of Adam to live in relationship to God and our relationship to Adam being that of one who's fallen and in sin. Glad you came this morning, <laughs> right? This is heavy stuff. The leading cause of death is sin. We die because we sinned, and God is faithful to his promise. Well, that's not the promise I like to think about, but that's the promise we all face every day. Now, let's talk about this covenant, this, this covenant that God has made. Is it it, 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 it's often, I, I'm calling it God's covenant with creation. Sometimes it's called the Adamic covenant. Now the reason that it's called the Adamic covenant is because Adam is the covenant head. It's simple, right? Like God's entering into covenant with Adam. And so, so I'm going to call this, uh, people have called it the Adamic covenant. And, and, and I appreciate that, but, but it's not just with Adam. It's with everyone. And, and that, that actually plays out when we get into the covenant we're going to study next, next week with Noah we find that that's not a new covenant. In fact, the, the same stipulations that are laid out with Noah is the same stipulations that are laid out with Adam 
And even in the New Testament, as this covenant is looked back on and remembered, it's not that we're in Adam it's, or that we're in Noah. We're either in Adam or in Christ. The covenant originates here, but it's not really just with Adam. It's with all mankind. In fact, as we'll see when we get there, you're actually going to find out that it's not just with mankind, but all of creation because God states this covenant, reaffirms this covenant with Noah, with his offspring, and all the creatures who are there. There's a covenant promise that God is making. And so there's a way in which this is with all of creation. Sometimes it's called the covenant of works. And I, I, I get that. It, it, I understand that because really there is a strong condition. Disobey and die. Don't disobey and, and live. There's a clear expectation. There's a clear work that Adam is to do. There's a clear responsibility that he has. The problem with naming it that is that it diminishes the reality that there's still grace at work in this covenant. Because God isn't obligated to bind himself to his creation in covenant. You, you take a picture on your phone. What do you have the right to do with that picture? Are you responsible to that picture? Are you responsible to do anything for that reflection or image that you've just created? No. You get to do with it whatever you want. Now, I'm not an artist, but I have built things in my life. I've got a little table that sits by our bed. Uh, it's a little I built it in high school. Got to win some competitions, and I've got a little plaque that says how great a table it is. It makes me feel really good to remember it that one time I did something like that. <laughs> Sorry, got all these little thoughts flying around in my head today. I just need to shut up and leave them. Anyway, so, so there's this table, and I appreciate this table, and it, it's a nice little table. But I get to choose with it. What happens? I can, I can break that down and burn it up in the fire, or I can leave it sit by my bed. Heck, I, I could find a chicken coop and let chickens rest on it. I can do with that table what I want. I'm not obligated to that table simply because I made that table. God is not obligated to bind himself and make promises to his creation simply because he created. We are not entitled to him to do this just because he created it. it he doesn't owe us anything that God would consider Binding himself, saying, I am going to act this way for your good is an act of his grace before we would be able to fully recognize his grace because we didn't, because we had fallen from innocent and sin, innocence and sinned against him. It becomes extremely evident in our sin that God is gracious. But God was being gracious in the very moment that he began the process of saying, I promise this. This is who you will be. So, so, so the covenant works. It's, it's not that it's not, I understand why it would be named that, but it misses the grace component that exists in the covenant. So I don't prefer that term. And, it, and another thing is what, what ends up happening is traditionally reformed people, mainly Pado baptists is who I would point to, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, 
who we agree with on so many things, but, and this is an in-house debate, but they would take this covenant of works and then distinguish it from what they call the covenant of grace, which then they connect from Noah all the way to Jesus as the covenant of grace, and they flatten those covenants out, and it's through that theological perspective and theological presentation that they end up baptizing babies because they don't fully recognize the in, intentional distinction, discontinuity, between these different covenants in which God will move and work, making promises and to bless and to curse, but ultimately providing relief and opportunity to be saved from this Adamic covenant or this covenant of works or this covenant with creation. So here's, it, it, it just, I think there's trouble with that term. So, so we will call it, as we talk about it, you call it what you want. Again, I don't mind if you're wrong. It doesn't matter to me. It does matter to me. But either any of these is fine. They work. I just want you to recognize why we're calling it covenant with creation because that's not the way it's typically phrased or referred to. Now, here's the question. Does it really exist? Is there really a covenant here? In all the verses I just read, I, I read every verse that God is dealing directly with mankind as he creates them. I read every verse that speaks of mankind in those chapters. There's not one word, not, not once, is covenant used, and that's the first objection. The first objection to the, the, the existence of an Adamic covenant or a covenant of works or a covenant with creation is that there's no word there. It doesn't say God covenanted with them. Another objection is a missing ceremony. Now, I think when you really are watching and following the flow of Genesis chapter 1, and you come down to where God, everything seems to stop, and the language even changes in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. That is, that is distinct. There's a distinct function, and there's this this expression and way in which God speaks, that I think there is a ceremony happening, that there is some, some special and intentional purpose and focus on those verses where God begins to speak about creating the man and the woman in his image, that I do think that there is a ceremony, but there's no ceremony like a wedding ceremony, which is a marriage covenant. It is a covenant agreement, a binding uh, uh, a, a, a covenant relationship, a, a chosen relationship between two parties with binding promises. And they stand in front of God and everybody else that's at their ceremony and they make these promises. Or there's no ceremony like the, the smoking pot and the flaming torch that, that went between the animals that had been halved, that had been cut in half, and, and, and they go through. There's no ceremony like that exactly. And so, so there's a, an objection about this missing word and this missing ceremony that, that is there really a covenant but I don't think either of these arguments or these positions are compelling or or helpful because the broader teaching of scripture I think does reveal that there is a covenant being established first is you just consider the word the word isn't present absent word but there's a present con concept and components just to illustrate it this way. So the word sin isn't used in any way in Genesis chapter 3. But can we see sin? Yes. Sin is obviously a taking place in Genesis. Rebellion against God's commands clearly taking place. But we understand it to be 
sin. We don't need the word, but we can see the concept. And so as you walk through what it is, what is a covenant, we see the components, the related, the related parties, the, the, the intentional chosen relationship. Let us make man in our own image. Him choosing to create specific purpose and, and promises made, right? The promises are there. The, 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 the expectation on them to live in a certain way and to fulfill their side, to live up to what God commanded. But his promise, this is who you'll be. They're, they're, they're there. We're going to see it all unfold as the, the, these components of, of the faithful and loyal love will become extremely clear when the, when the man and the woman have become rebellious. And the lack of obedience and trust are extremely plain when they begin to reject God as their sole authority. So the concepts are, are clearly there. A covenant that w- in concept is, is clearly there. But further, there's passages of Scripture that seem to refer to this as a covenant. So, so, so let's, let me just step back for just a second because... If we only take the word, the missing word, and say, oh, that's enough, it's not a covenant, then what do we do with David in 2 Samuel 7? The word covenant isn't mentioned. But the Psalms speak of it, the prophets speak of it as a covenant. Psalm 89.3, Psalm 132, 11 and 12, we're not going to read these, write them down. Psalm 89.3. Psalm 132, 11 and 12, Jeremiah 33, 21. All three of these refer to David. And what happened in 2 Samuel 7, when God promises, I'm going to establish your throne forever, they speak to it as a covenant promise. The concepts are all there, but the word's not there. So do other passages of Scripture then speak this way? Yes. Hosea 6, 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There, they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, those that want to reject the covenant taking place in these three chapters are going to say that Adam represents a place, not a person. Now, there's lots of problems with that because there is no place that we know of that's ever referred to as Adam. Then it speaks of all mankind. Well, who are the mankind? There's so many problems with the interpretation to try and make this be something other than that first man, Adam, that when it undoes other things inside of Hosea's uh, writing. And so, so the clearest, best interpretation of this verse is that Adam is referring to Adam, who God created, and they is Israel, and their rejection of, of the covenant that, like Adam, like Adam rejected his covenant, like Adam didn't uphold his end of the bargain or his end of the responsibility they transgressed Israel transgressed they dealt faithlessly they were faithless toward God and further in the New Testament there are passages that don't necessarily use the word covenant but that demonstrate and compare what's happening with Jesus in the new covenant with Adam in his covenant Romans chapter 5 is one of those places and in 1 Corinthians 15 is another 1 Corinthians 15 21 through 23 For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So already we're hearing, oh, what, death? How did that enter? We know through a man. And resurrection, hope from a life after death, comes from from a man. Who are these men? Verse 22, for as in Adam all die. 
also in Christ all shall be made alive. See, what happens here is that if Noah's the first covenant, if, because that's the first time the actual word covenant is used is in Genesis 6. I want to say it's like verse 18. And if that first covenant is that covenant in which death entered in, and, and then Noah should be. It should be in Noah that we die. Right? But that's not what happens. It's Adam or Christ. It's either in Adam you're dead or in Christ you're alive. There's, there's, not, a, there's not another choice. But each in his own order, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Now there's other points that I can make, but I think that's sufficient to show that the word doesn't have to be there. There is some form of ceremony, I think, taking place when, when if you look at what happens in Genesis chapter one, and you see the distinct way in which God approaches the creation of the man and woman, and then we see chapter two broken out to show us the, the moment in which God formed and God breathed life and, and, and God met with and began to, to bestow authority upon the man and say, name the animals, and, and hey, by the way, you're not going to find one that fits you. There's, there is ceremony, there is intention, there is purpose for us to see that something special is happening with the man. And with the woman. And then plenty of biblical support to demonstrate that Adam was a covenant head, a covenant representative just like Jesus. God the creator bound himself in covenant relationship to his creation with the promise of life and fellowship or death and exile. Now I I think the fact that God condescended to do this, that, that, that he determined that he was going to create someone between him and, and uh, between creation and between him, because you think about what, where we stand in this whole thing. We're higher than the creature, right? We're, we're higher than the creation itself, but we're less than God. We're lower than God. The very fact that God instituted this and, and put this in place is astonishing in and of itself that he made him responsible He made himself responsible in making promises. He made himself responsible to act in a certain way. He bound himself in these promises in relationship to us. This this is so significant. It inspired David. This idea inspired David so much that he's filled with awe. And he writes the words of Psalm 8, specifically calling out Psalm 8, 4. What is man that you're mindful of him? Think about it. You are so high. I look around, and this is the way he starts the psalm. I look around, and I see what you've done. The work of your hands, the power, the majesty of your nature. What am I? What is man that you are mindful of him, that you would interact with me, that you would be, make promises to me, that you would do this work on my behalf? That's huge and significant, right? But there's other reasons this matters. It's, it, it is that, yes, absolutely, but there's so much here that, that brings out the, the, the significance of us understanding what happens in the garden. God made us to live in such a way that we could know life and fellowship with him. This is a promised blessing that in God's covenant with creation, there's a promise of life and sh- fellowship, his blessing upon us. And you see that broken out as, as we read through these verses. We were image bearers. 
distinct from every other point of creation, raised up above them, elevated above them over and over as he, as he um, speaks of the, the beasts of the field and, and the birds of the air. It speaks of them as living creatures. In Genesis chapter 6, it speaks of, of all of the animals that have the, life, the breath of life. So in some way, we all share this life. That the idea, the, the, the intentionality and the purpose that we see God somehow, some way, in my mind, and I know this, this is not accurate and I want to be careful here, but in my mind, he leaning over and breathing in, giving us life, making dust live. That's a huge thing, right? But then he says, you are my image bearer. You are my reflection and representation. You are going to make me known in this physical world. My glory is going to be seen in you. You are going to represent me. You are going to exercise my authority. You're to rule and subdue. You're to be fruitful and multiply so that the whole world is filled with my glory and under my authority in you. In covenant terms, we were created as priests and kings. Oh, it's another covenant concept that comes out as we work our way through. And Christ would ultimately fill that role perfectly. Priest and king. Our reflection and representation, our image bearer status, we are a connection of a physical world. We are a liaison. We are a place in which they can experience and know and see the glory of God. We are his priests. And he says, rule and subdue. Exercise my authority under my authority. Kings. This is what we were created for. This is who we were, image bearers of this God. Fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 1.28, he blessed them. It says, it says he blessed them that they would be fruitful and multiply. He enabled us to participate in the process of filling the world with his glory, with the image of this great God. He enabled us to participate and, and take part in that, ultimately depended upon him to make it happen, but yet still able to do it. Rule and subdue, exercise authority, whose work and purpose. We see this in Genesis 1:28, but also in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Take care of the garden. It wasn't just live off the garden and consume the garden. That's the way we tend to use authority in the world today, right? Like just get what I want, demand of people, get up here and get a job done. Come on, I'm telling you what to do. Why aren't you listening? Right? Take care of it. Tend it. He gave man as a gift to the creation as much as he gave the creation as a gift to the man. The, the man was to make the world fruitful. The man and, and the woman together were to rule and subdue and, 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 and enable the world to become what God intended it to become. Abundance. They were to live in abundance. In 129, the, the, the blessing of life and fellowship with God Every tree. Now we learn in chapter 2, verse 15, it's not without limitation. There's a tree that's withheld. One stinking tree. One tree withheld. Everything else is yours. Have it. Enjoy it. 
There's one, I didn't call this out when we worked through Genesis chapter 2. We didn't get to, to, to deal with this exactly. We will in days and weeks to come as we consider God's rest. But in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the last day, day 7, is spoken of. And it's, what, it's interesting because every other day has an end to it, right? As you're going through the chronology, this is the beginning and the end of this day. Day, five, day, day 1 ends. Day two begins, has an end. Day seven begins, and God rested. What he created us to live in was his rest. What he created us to work in was his rest. Because of his promises, God was saying, hey, don't eat of this tree, and you will be able to enjoy the rest that my work has accomplished as you reflect and represent me as priests and kings, as you fill the earth, the, the, as you take care of the garden and tend to it and, and cause the world to be fruitful, you will get to experience all of that in my rest. That's further highlighted when you get into Genesis chapter 3, and in his pronouncement of judgment comes toil and fruitlessness, scarcity, and the removal of these blessings so so it's no wonder i think if you if just stop and consider for a minute if this is what's ingrained in every person as an image bearer of god it should not be shocking then to see so much trouble in our world we were created to live in god's rest and we only know toil Because our representative, our covenant head, failed. And now every one of us, every person at the moment of conception is born into, is conceived into death and exile, which is the promised curse. God's promise, it's clear. Everything else is implicit. Like, this is what I'm creating. This is what I'm doing. And all of these things are implied. But the promise of the curse, it's right there. We can't miss it. If you eat of this tree, you'll die. You will die. You will not know the blessing of life and fellowship. You will die. The leading cause of death is sin and rejection of God. So you just think about all we experience in the world around us. Idolatry, we are surrounded. We even struggle with it in our own hearts. Idolatry. There's, there's heart idols, of the, the idea of comfort and power and, and of affirmation and approval, acceptance, the, the, the ideas, of the, 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 the strong and uh, driving force of a desire for comfort in the world. So everything we do, we try to achieve comfort. But, but that's not the only kind of idolatry out there. The love of money. There's all kinds of things, even noble things that we, we raise up as the most important thing in our life that we devote ourselves to, that we give our adoration and devotion to, that we live unto. And then there's the real traditional idolatry where you stand in a place like China. Where I'll never forget this. The reason I wanted to be a part of work there was standing the very first time I went in a Buddhist temple and a father and a son, the father teaching his son, to light the uh, incense and to go before the statue, a statue 
of a dead man who's in a grave. Set that, set that incense and step out and step in front of that statue and begin to bow. That's real. It's happening all over the place. All over the place. And we don't have to have a statue erected in our home. We're erecting these things in our heart all the time. Idolatry is everywhere. We, have, we, like Adam and Eve, continue to give ourselves to other gods. We, we seek autonomy. We don't just try to live free. We try to live autonomous. Who are you to tell me what to do? You don't get any right to tell me. I'm going to tell you my truth and how I'm going to live. You, you have your opinion. I'm going to have mine. Did God really say? Yeah, he really said. See, it wasn't that God was not exercising authority. It wasn't that there was no authority, but that woman and the man and woman would have gotten to live in freedom, but they still would have been under his authority. We continue to reject his authority to this day. And that finds its way out in all kinds of other things in which we see established in the garden. Marriage established in the garden. The very first, the very first marriage in all of creation takes place in the garden. And, and this is the ceremony officiated by God who brings these two together. And Adam sees his wife and is ecstatic. And I know it's a marriage because when, when it's referenced, when marriage is referenced in the New Testament, when, when Paul talks about a covenantal marriage, when Paul talks about a marriage, he references, in Ephesians 5, he references Genesis chapter 2. When Jesus is confronted about divorce, he references Genesis chapter 2. And so in some ways, we can recognize that, that man and women, even outside the church, still marry because that's a reflection of what was happening. But we've done all kinds of things with marriage that is unfaithful to the word. I mean, there's people that marry trees now. The, the government has no right. I want to say this cautiously and carefully, but the government has no right to define marriage as something that can happen between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. You can call it something, but it's not a biblical, God-ordained uh, uh, marriage. Male headship in the home. We fight against this, resist it all the time. In fact, in one of my premarital counseling sessions, I was told, I, you, you can't use that verse in my wedding because I don't like the word submit. Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husband. Don't submit to every man. It's not what he's calling it. It's not what he says. Submit to your own husband as unto Christ. Yeah, I don't like the word submit. How do you submit to God then? If you don't like that word, you're still trying to live in autonomy, not just freedom. Movements. And, and I'm not suggesting, and I think there's ways in which men have been horrible to their wives in, in patriarch, patriarchal systems and have abused and, and misused and misrepresented authority. They've not used it in a godly way. But the solution is not then, I'm going to have my way. In fact, that's exactly what we see happen when, that's exactly what God says, this is going to be the case. When the husband and wife can't see eye to eye in Genesis chapter 3, 16. Your desire is going to be contrary to him, but he's going to rule over you. Plan itself out. Gender. Male and female. He created them. Rooted in creation. And here's the thing. is that A lot of people look at these things as problems to be solved. 
we got to get people to quit same-sex marriage, marrying trees and trains and all the other things that they've been out there marrying. we gotta, we got to stop that. Please, go vote, right? Go exercise your voice. Have the, male headship in the home. Listen, and consequently, this works out to the church, right? It doesn't stop at the home. There's a way in which it consequently works itself out in the church as well. But oh, I'm going to go pick up my, my picket and my poster, and I, I'm going to go let people know that, that, that women can rule over men. Men, well, whatever men can do, women can do, and they can do better. I, I'll say this. Here's, I, I, this is probably, again, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say this. Last night we had a men's event here. It was great, fun, good time. I didn't get to stay for the whole thing, but it was, it was a good fellowship that occurs. But I walk in, and there's two plain white tables stuck against the wall. I'm not complaining. Don't hear me complaining, John. It's not a problem for me. Walk in, two plain white tables stuck against the wall, different plates out. There's no coordination at all. Like there's different sizes the, the, the utensils, some of them were white, some of them were clear. I don't even know if there was enough forks for everybody. I'm not even certain about that. When we started to take the food, there was no utensils, so Bob reaches in with his hand and takes some food besides plate, right? There was no tablecloths. There was no little pretty things dressed up. You can do that better than us. But I loved every minute of what, what I got to enjoy. It was good. That's, that's true. But... The, the, the solution isn't react, right, and solve this problem. These are all evidences. And, 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 and there's real issues in a person that is struggling with gender. There's something broken. We understand this, right? We get this. The solution then isn't fix it. These are all evidences. And, and, and is there ways in which we should write laws and seek to order a society inside of the, the, the word? Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not arguing against that. But if our goal is fix these problems by fixing this issue, then we've ignored the, 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 the thing that's caused the symptom. We've ignored the actual illness, which is death. These are evidences that death reigns here. You get that. They're all expressed in God's condemnation and judgment and the curse. We live in a world in which death reigns and exile from God is the norm because we forsake his covenant with creation. There's only really one solution. Jesus and the new covenant established by his blood. The covenant that we celebrate every week as we call believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, to come and remember the price that was paid. The one who was perfect, who was sinless, who could actually die as our representative, not paying for his own sin first, but because he didn't have a sin to pay for, he could die as a sacrifice. He could pour out his blood on our behalf so that he could stand now as our representative, as he says, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, for as man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And that's not universalism. Because the very next verse qualifies who that all is. Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. We have, to get, we have to understand this because if we don't see this happening, then we are going to give ourselves to fixing all the problems that are symptoms of us living in death, living and surrounded by the valley of the shadow of death. 
the solution isn't just make people live in a way that conforms to, to the Scripture, although there's nothing wrong with that ultimately. It doesn't make them alive. They'll just die a little bit more comfortable for us. They won't bother us or make us have conversations with our kids that are uncomfortable or struggle with the tensions of how we live and walk in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not suggesting that there's not ways in which we should do this and things we should do. Don't misunderstand that. That's not the point I'm trying to make. We should seek to establish a government that fulfills God's purpose for government to restrain evil and reward good. But that only solves a physical problem. The reality is that no matter how good our government is, if we are not in Christ, we are dead. It doesn't matter if you can get your children to obey you or not by, by rule of fear and power or just trying to earn your approval. If they are not in Christ, they are dead. I'll, I'll stop. But I want you to hear this appeal. Because I've spoken a lot to people who I think and, and really sought to say this in ways in which I'm speaking to people who I believe are in that covenant of that new covenant with Christ. But there are likely people sitting in this room who are seeking to clean themselves up, seeking to do some work that makes them feel comfortable and fit them into some set of commands, ignoring the fact that the reality that you have a desire for those things is because by nature you are a child of wrath. And apart from Christ, you will die and spend eternity in exile. But there is a solution. He is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so please hear this call. Turn to him. Trust in him. And finally, find the life and the fellowship that you so long for. Let's pray.